Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Wednesday, July the 20th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, July the 25th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At KOOP.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 116th post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. Tonight, we are truly blessed to have as our guest, statesmen of our government, former senator, state senator from Virginia, Colonel Richard Black, Vietnam War veteran, a licensed attorney who is one of the very few voices that spoke truth to power when it came to the misrepresentations of our role in Syria. This is part two of a two-part Syria series with Colonel Black that began last week. So please stay tuned and enjoy. Okay, welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP. Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. We are blessed to have with us the distinguished legal and military expert and former lawmaker. That would be Colonel Richard Black. Colonel Black, thank you for rejoining us. It was very good to be with you. Well, we had a very important and wide-ranging discussion on Syria last week that I wanted to continue in a part two type of deal. I just want to indicate to our listeners that we're actually taping this show here on Wednesday, July the 20th, 2022. This will be rebroadcast live on Co-op Radio on July 25th, 2022 at 6 p.m. There was a, a speech that I alluded to that you gave at the Schiller Institute oh, about a year ago, June the 21st, 2021. There were a number of, of issues there that you brought up that are not and have not made it to the, the dominant narrative uh, that we get in the United States. And so I thought that I would highlight a few of those things and ask you to comment on them. And I want to, if I could, for those people that are not familiar with our guest, Colonel Black, Richard Black is a former Virginia State lawmaker. He also is a Vietnam veteran. He was not just a veteran, but he was in the heat of extraordinary death and destruction, if for lack of a better way of putting it. And I don't want to really focus on those type of traumatic experiences that you have, but you were just in the middle of all of this. And when you were highlighting your own personal upbringing, what's so interesting to me is how people get to where they're at in this moment of time through the experiences of life. And you highlighted your upbringing with two wonderful, loving relatives, your father and your and your uncle that had opposing but very respectful views of each other. And I think that's what we need more of in this day and age is to analyze stuff based on the merit 
of the content rather than on emotions of personalities and name calling and those types of things. But you actually visited Syria, and I understand may have had private visits with President Assad. Those dates were twice, once in April of 2016 and once in September of 2018. And so your experience also as a Pentagon intelligence expert, a, a lawyer, a legal lawyer, a JAG lawyer, someone that was very connected to the legal types of, of issues and intelligence. So the experiences in that, that you heard during that time helped shape your point of view considerably as well. But you said something that was really striking to me last week, and it's something that I believe in as well, is that most of the stuff that you heard of, of a classified nature, if I got this right, were things that you'd already known about through your own vigorous exploration and uh, open-sourced historical analysis of what was going on. So there is plenty of contradictions that are out there if you look at them close enough in order to question our government. And, but I wanted to frame our discussion because we have a country in which, unfortunately, we really cannot trust our government based on its own track record of informing the American public. From the Pentagon Papers, we learned that we were considerably misled in the Vietnam War. In the Afghan Papers, we were told it was winnable, and we were, when in fact, privately, we were saying it was not winnable. So we were lied to about that. The Syrian theater is one that I really wanted to continue our focus on. It seems to me that one of the misperceptions that people have about Syria more than anything else was that the 2011 demonstrations that you talked about last week that led to a military conflict that, in fact, the military conflict, the overwhelming majority of opposition forces were foreign jihadist terrorists, were from outside the country of Syria. And were trained, armed, and supplied by the, the United States with their allies, the Gulf monarchies and Turkey, but not predominantly Syrians, would have been the backbone of the military opposition to the Assad government. My first question for you to give us a background on, if not for the U.S. and al-Qaeda allies, would there have even been a military conflict of this magnitude that now has taken over 400,000 lives? We claim it's a civil war in, in the narrative of, of Syria, but a civil war implies peoples of the same country fighting each other when really, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the overwhelming military opposition to the Assad government were not coming from Syrians, but from outside the country. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, let me let me say, uh, I, I can't give you percentages. I think there are certainly quite a number of, of extremists who are Syrian, Syrian Sunnis. Most of the Sunnis in Syria are moderate. In fact, most of the Sunnis are fighting in the army for the nation of Syria, not with the terrorists. But there are significant number who have sided with the terrorists. But the, the heart and soul, the leadership of the extremist movements of, of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, these are all interlinked. Don't get confused by all of the different names that, that are thrown out by the U.S. State Department and by the, the rebels themselves. They all are, are interlinked. And the leadership is from uh, is very much from outside of Syria. 
the the largest number of foreign-born ISIS members came from Tunisia. Interestingly, that's where the Arab Spring began with this suicide of one person. And I think at that point, that was used as a trigger for all of the Western intelligence agencies to sort of gin up this narrative of unrest and this narrative that somehow the people of the Middle East had this tremendous longing for democracy. It was a total hoax. It was a total fabrication. There was nothing underlying this. But in any event, we began working with Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. Those were the on-the-ground active groups that were funding and recruiting terrorists from all across the globe to come in. One of the principal draws for jihadists to travel from other countries and go to Syria was that under a seventh century vision of Islam, what it was was this idea that that a, a devout Muslim had the right to any woman that he could seize with his strong right arm. That's how it's how it reads in the religious documents. Well, this of course had not been practiced for for a long time in the in the Middle East, but it was brought back by Al Qaeda, which incidentally Al Qaeda was called Al Nusra through much of the war, and then when people began to realize that that meant Al Qaeda, they changed their name again but there's still Al-Qaeda in Syria. But anyway, one of the big draws was that if you went to one of the Al-Qaeda or ISIS-held areas of Syria, if you could kill the husband of a woman, you could possess the children and the wife of that man. You owned them. They were slaves. They were chattel slaves. You could sell them on the market. And uh, you could rape the, the wife repeatedly. You could rape the little girls repeatedly. And there was a massive campaign of rape that was carried out by the, the allies of the United States in Syria, which were all of this whole group. They called them different things. Nur al-Zinki, Free Syrian Army, Al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, ISIS. They were all same group, really. And so widespread was this campaign of rape. I don't mean to to overstate. I don't want to say that the campaign was planned and initiated by the Central Intelligence Agency. But I will tell you that the Central Intelligence Agency and the State Department knew that it was going on. They understood that it was going on and they had no problems with it. So what was going on is they were raping women and children. They actually set up slave markets. In in one instance, Spy was able to infiltrate and actually get a copy of the price list for women. And the prices were highest for underage girls because there was a tremendous attraction for pedophiles to come in and to rape little girls. And you could do it lawfully. And Colonel, you got this pricing list. Was that during one of your visits 
to Syria? Is that what you're talking about? When you're no, this this was uh, it was online for a while. Many of the videos have been purged. The U.S. government coordinates with the Twitters and the Facebooks and all of these organizations, and they have withdrawn a lot of material that used to be there. I suspect it could still be found if you searched hard enough. But they actually they they were able to film several really kind of disgusting guys who were having this discussion. And then they got hold of of the price list itself. There were reports, and I think this may have been even in the mainstream press. There was one particular leader of one of one of the terrorist groups. And he had a, a young girl, I don't know whether she was 12 years old or something, and he would strap her to the windshield of the Humvee that he drove into battle. <clears throat> and when he would fight against the Syrian army, Syrian armies, they're very decent people. They're, they're very good. They're very, very law-abiding people. And they would see this Humvee come roaring across the, the plains at them. And then they'd see this poor girl. She was stripped naked. He would strip her down naked and and lash her to the windshield. And then he would rush into battle. And the Syrians were very reluctant to shoot. They didn't know what to do. And so it was a very, I don't know how long she lasted before she, she was finally killed. But uh, she lasted for some time. And this this was the kind of thing that went on. Now, the, the rape was so widespread that when I visited in 2018, I had already heard that the Syrian, let's call it parliament, it's called the people's uh, something or other, but it's essentially the parliament of Syria. And they were considering legislation that would change the citizenship rules. Now, under Islamic law, traditionally, a child derives its citizenship from the citizenship of the father. And that, that worked fine. But here we had a situation, we, we had massive numbers of foreign jihadists coming into Syria and killing not just soldiers, but killing civilians too, killing the men, enslaving the women, raping them, impregnating them. And then the, you know, the woman would have a child and, and over time, many of the terrorists were killed off. Some of them fled to their home countries in Saudi Arabia or Tunisia or wherever it was. Maybe it was Great Britain, but they would flee or be killed. And so the mothers were left with these children of foreign fathers. And so the parliament was considering legislation to, to modify the law so that these children would be Syrian citizens rather than being in limbo with the citizenship derived from another country. I actually spoke with President Bashar al-Assad about this, and he told me that, yes, indeed, this was underway, that it was such a massive problem all across the country uh, that they had just tens and perhaps hundreds of thousands of Syrian women impregnated by U.S.-backed terrorists from around the world. 
So they did finally change the law so that they would grant these children of rape citizenship within Syria. Let me ask you this, Colonel Black, because while we're on the subject of the atrocities committed by these jihadists, there was quite the misrepresentation of what was transpiring in Aleppo. And I guess it was Idlib province as well, where you had a huge stronghold of jihadists. Can you speak from firsthand knowledge? When when you're talking about the strapping of a woman to the front of a, a vehicle, I can also remember many stories coming out from, I think it was with Vanessa Bealey and other people that were on the ground there that were heroically putting their safety on, on the line. But there's the reports coming out of Aleppo that when the civilian population tried to leave Aleppo, namely Syrians, that the family members that were left behind were unconscionably abused, killed, beheaded, those types of things in order to strike terror and keep the civilian population from leaving in order to have that civilian shield type thing. Those tactics, I don't want to stray too far from our subject, but mm-hmm. can you first tell us how the U.S. media represented the situation in Aleppo, namely that Russia was indiscriminately bombing hospitals, those types of things that proved to be grossly exaggerated? Yeah, let, let, me, let me talk about Aleppo a little. Yeah. The battle for Aleppo was one of the great military battles of the last century. It went on for years and years. The Syrian army fought against Al-Qaeda and its affiliates, and uh, the battle went on and on. Interesting from a tactical perspective, and it had gone on for, oh, perhaps four years before Russia ever got involved. And the Syrian army had finally worn down the terrorists uh, they were still very powerful, but uh, they they had suffered a great deal, as the Syrian army had. And when the Russians finally came in, and it was around 2015, they didn't put troops on the ground, but they put in air power. And the air power did play an important role in Aleppo. I can't say it was decisive, but it was important. In any event, what happened is the Syrian army altered their strategy and they they went north of Aleppo and they managed to cut off the supply lines for the terrorists that were in the city of Aleppo. When they did that, they eventually trapped them in what I call the Aleppo pocket. And the Aleppo pocket had a very, very large force of Al-Qaeda terrorists, uh, very, very battle-hardened, experienced troops prepared to, to fight almost to the death. So what happened is the Syrian army was always very quick to establish lanes where civilians could escape from the battle so that the battle would simply be between Al-Qaeda and the Syrian army. So they announced that they were forming these lanes that anyone could pass through without being harmed and that they'd be provided food and shelter and so forth in the Syrian controlled area. And this was a real problem for the al-Qaeda terrorists because the Western media liked to run stories about civilians being killed in these battles. And of course, anytime you're fighting in urban combat, 
you have to blow down buildings. And if there are civilians there, the civilians are going to be killed. That's just the way that it is. I controlled airstrikes in Vietnam. And the, if the Viet Cong decided that they were going to fight from a village, we bombed the village. That was That's the way that it worked. So it's really up to the defender where they choose to defend. And Al-Qaeda chose to defend in the built-up urban areas. So it was a threat to them to lose these civilians because they would lose a lot of public support because then they couldn't claim that the Syrian army was trying to kill civilians. So after Syria opened these, these escape lanes for civilians, civilians started fleeing from them. Now, the Al-Qaeda people, I think they called themselves al-Nusra at that point, they put up machine guns and they began to machine gun and mow down the civilians who were escaping. Of course, this was never reported in the Western media. These things were censored very heavily in the Western media. But then finally, there was one instance that kind of broke through. It was just too much for for even even the mainstream media to deal with. The terrorists decided that something had to be done to get control of the civilians. They couldn't stop them, even though they were machine gunning people as they fled. So they sent a team from a group that was called Noor al-Zinki. Now, Noor al-Zinki was a total creation of the U.S. government. Every member of Noor al-Zinki was paid salaries by the United States government. All of their arms came from the United States. Their assignments were determined by the United States. And what they did, now I'm not saying that this particular action was planned by the U.S., but they sent a team of five individuals into a hospital in the Syrian-controlled area of Aleppo. And uh, they kidnapped a little boy who was being treated in the hospital for a blood disease that's endemic in the Middle East. The boy was very small because of the blood disease, rather weak, rather sickly. And they took him from the hospital. He still had the IV hanging from his arm. And they took him to the center square in the Aleppo pocket that they held. And they had him in the back of a pickup truck, an open pickup truck. And while people were wandering around during the day, they went where they could be most visible. And they grabbed this terrified little boy. They pulled him up by the head. They held him up and they yelled to the crowd to watch what they were doing. And then they took a big, long, sharpened knife And they sawed the boy's head off as he was screaming and he was yelling and he was terrified. They completely sawed his head from his body. And then they held up his head and they waved it around to the crowd. And their message was, if you dare to escape to the free part of Syria, this is what awaits you. Now, this was so horrific that it broke into the mainstream media. It was reported, uh, I don't know, very widely reported. And at that point, the response of the Central Intelligence Agency and the State Department was to shut down Noor al-Zinki. 
basically to disperse that group so that they could go and fight with other groups, whether it was ISIS or Al-Qaeda. These groups are all the same. And this is important to remember. Sometimes they conflict with one another. Sometimes they actually fight with one another. But they all share the same fundamentalist, hideous set of beliefs. And they have absolutely no heart for humanity. A little boy with the IV hanging from his arm, a sick boy. And they're up there. Afterwards, they were taking selfies of themselves. This is the mentality of the people that we, the United States, are supporting. And we've supported them from the very beginning against the Syrian government, which, like every government, has its challenges, but which would never, ever condone this type of behavior. Well, let me just remind folks that we are visiting with the distinguished Colonel Richard Black, former Virginia lawmaker, and he visited Syria on two different occasions. Colonel Black, we need to make a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin, and we'll be back right after this. Don't touch that dial.